from Psalm 63. God, my God, it's you. I search for you. My whole being thirsts for you. My body desires you. In a dry and tired land, no water anywhere. Edward Abbey tells this story he calls a walk in the desert hills about a walk in the desert hills. He had decided he was going to take this 100-mile hike through the Sonoran Desert. And he had been in the desert many times before. He was experienced in the desert. But <clears throat> he had these two friends who were going to drop him off at his starting point. So he climbs into their car and they begin to travel this old Jeep road until it gets too difficult to continue down. And he says this about that. He said, if we drive any farther, we'll wreck the car. A low-slung, underpowered, high-geared luxury machine designed for the Audubons of Europe, not for sand, rock, brush, the Sonoran wasteland. So they get out of the car. It's late, he and his friends. And his friends look around, his friends whom he calls perennial city dwellers. And they look around in the desert and they listen. And he says it's overwhelmingly quiet. There's this, this absolute silence. No cell phones going off, no car horns honking in the distance, just silence. And they comment on how amazing the desert is. And he says, not much water. That's the problem. Sure enough, his friends climb back in their car. They turn around and drive off, and he begins his hike into the desert hills. And if you're like me, you hear that story, and you think to yourself, those city folks out there in the desert, what were they doing out there? They had come prepared for that. And then one of you says, Eric, where do you live? I'm like, uh, East Memphis, <laughs> which is not exactly the middle of the desert, right? And I think it's tempting when I hear that story to, to place myself in Edward Abbey's shoes, this desert hard man who's not afraid of snakes and scorpions or getting a little thirsty. But the truth is, I am a city dweller. Most of us are city dwellers. You know, we went into the high desert of New Mexico on our sabbatical last year. And in New Mexico, I think we were driving the only minivan in the whole state. Everybody was in these, you know, old forerunners and Land Rovers and Jeeps, and they had uh, busted out headlights and big old knobby tires and scrapes down the side. All of them were dusty. And I could just tell when I drove up to a service station that the attendant would look at me, look out at our Kia Sedona, look at me and think to himself, perennial city dweller. <laughs> you know, the desert as a place and maybe as a metaphor, is kind of a romantic thing to us. It has this romantic quality. We think it'd be really nice to have everything stripped away. We know that we spend too much, we work too much, we do too much. And the, the thought of just being out in the the silence of the desert with all of that stuff just taken away. It sounds really nice. Like the friend of mine who um, realized he was spending too much time on his phone. He was frustrated with himself because he was always distracted by Facebook and other things on his phone. So instead of upgrading his iPhone, he upgraded to an old flip phone. And man, he thought he was big time. He thought he had really made a statement. And he carried that flip phone around for three days. And three days later, he was back in the iPhone store buying the newest iPhone. Eric, he says to me without ever looking up, have you seen the camera on this thing? We think 
the desert would be nice. But sure enough, when Edward Abbey walks into this desert, into the desert hills, it turns out to be really hard. It gets desperately thirsty out there because the problem is there's not any water. Right. You know, Jesus went to the desert. Paul goes to the desert. Long before those two guys, Abraham and Moses went to the desert. And we believe that Psalm 63 is from a time in David's life when he's in the desert. God, my God, it's you. I search for you. My whole being thirsts for you. My body desires you, listen to this, in a dry and tired land, no water anywhere. What is it about the desert that attracted these heroes of faith? Well, I think it's the same thing that, as we kind of imagine in our minds what, what the desert would be like, it's the same thing that would attract us, this, this idea that if everything else was stripped away, that everything in our life, all the distractions of our life, if those things were stripped away, then I would find out what's left. You know, I would find out what's really in here if everything else was gone. And in Psalm 63, what we see in David is that when he goes to the desert and everything else is taken away, there's just one thing that remains. God. God. My God. It's you, he says. Now, it's hard to really pin down any psalm in terms of when it was written, the exact situation. Like I said, we're pretty sure this is from a time when David was in the desert, and David was in the desert early on in his life. You remember, he kills the Goliath, he's taken into Saul's household, but then King Saul wants to kill David, and he spends all of this time fleeing for his life in the desert. However, we don't think that Psalm 63 is from that time in the desert. We think it's from the second time. This was when he was king over Israel and his son Absalom stages a coup to take the throne from his dad, David, and it works. And David has to flee into the desert. And we think that because of the last verses, pick up in verse nine there, but what about those people who want to destroy me? Let them go into the bowels of the earth. Let their blood flow by the sword. Let them be food for wild jackals, but the king should rejoice in God. Everyone who hears, who swears by God, should give praise when the mouths of liars are shut for good. Well, who's the king? It's David. David's, David's talking about himself. And the clue that this prayer comes from that different time in the desert is this one here, this mention of the king rejoicing. Whereas before, he had been a, a shepherd boy who had slain a giant and people knew who he was. But the first time he goes into the desert, he really doesn't have much to lose. But this time, I mean, he was king. He's got all the comforts in the world. People surrounding him, tending to his every need. And he has to flee from all of that and become king of rocks and brush. Right. There's not much to be king of in the desert. There's no water anywhere. And so what he says next is really surprising. And it's worth paying attention to because what I'm guessing is that right now, like if we're honest, many of us feel like we're in a desert moment. You know, we are, we are comfortable people by and large. We're easily distracted by all the things we have going on in our lives. And I'm guilty of this as well. And what's happened in this pandemic is that so much of that has been stripped away. You know, suddenly our calendars are empty, for example. And so some of us have this, this tendency in a moment like that to feel frustrated you know, to despair, 
to be angry, even at God. And the desert, it turns out, is pretty harsh. You know, it turns out to not be that forgiving of a place to be. And some of us are dealing with that in our own souls as we wrestle with losing things that are really close to our hearts. But listen to what David says. God, my God, it's you. I search for you. My whole being thirsts for you. My body desires you in a dry and tired land, no water anywhere. Yes, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've seen your power and your glory in my lips. Praise you, he says, because your faithful love is better than life itself. So I'll bless you as long as I'm alive. I'll lift up my hands in your name. I'm fully satisfied as with a rich dinner. My mouth speaks praise with joy on my lips. Whenever I ponder you on my bed, whenever I meditate you in the middle of the night, because you've been a help to me, and I shout for joy in the protection of your wings, my whole being clings to you, your strong hand, <coughs> your strong hand upholds me. What's happening here? You know, pay attention. It's in this place where he's thirsty, where there's no water. He's in the desert. It's in this place that he's actually being revived. I mean, think about that. And it's not just a, uh, like that he's being revived. It's a revival. His whole spirit is being transformed. Look at it. In verse 1, he's famished. By verse 2, he's feasting. He's fully satisfied in verse 5. By verse 7, he's shouting for joy. I mean, he has gone from despondent roaming in the wasteland of the desert to this all-consuming worship. His hands are raised. He's praising God. He's clinging to God. He doesn't care who sees him. His spirit is in the middle of a revival, even though his body is in the middle of the desert. And I got to tell you, as a church leader who's been praying for revival, not only at this church, but in our country, in the world, I'm paying attention to this. Okay, you know how many books, do you know how many books have been written on what it takes to start a revival? Uh, what preachers need to be saying, what churches need to be doing, what members need to be doing, how much they need to be giving, what the world needs to be seeing and hearing. I mean, just get on Amazon and search revival and you will be blown away by how many books have been written about it. But apparently, all it takes for revival is the love of God. Look again at verse 3. My lips praise you because your faithful love is better than life itself. That word translated faithful love here is one of the most important words in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And faithful love kind of gets at it, but, but not quite. Um, it, one scholar says a better translation than faithful might be tenacious love. It's this unstoppable, relentless love that God has for you and has for me. It has for all of his people. It's God's hesed, his tenacious love that when Adam and Eve betray him, leads him to, to clothe them and cover their shame. It's his tenacious love, his hesed, that leaves God, leads God to forgive Israel time and again when they betray him. And it is his faithful love that causes God to send Jesus Christ to the world for you and me. Remember, as we discussed a few weeks ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And if you could experience that tenacious 
love, you'd be revived. I mean, I don't have any doubts about that. If you could experience God's acid, it would revive you. Problem is that we're pretty comfortable. You know, I read this line here in verse 3, your love, your faithful love is better than life itself. And I think to myself, really? My life's, my life's pretty good. You know, sometimes Lindsay and I sit in the backyard, we're watching our boys play, we're holding the hands, just seeing these beautiful children full of delight. And we look at each other and we think, life does not get better than this. And even we have to remind each other, Lindsay and I, don't confuse the gift with the giver, right? Don't mistake the blessing for the one who blesses. This can all be stripped away, and I hate to even speak that out loud, but this can all be stripped away. And what you got to remember is no child, no grandchild, no retirement dinners, no trips to the beach are enough to revive you. You know, there is only one thing in this world that is capable of reviving you or me, and that is the tenacious, faithful love of God. This pandemic has felt for many of us like a desert, like I said. For some of us, it's like we knew we spent too much money and now we don't have so much money to spend. We knew we worked too much and now we're working from home and that's hard and difficult and we're not being nearly as productive. We knew we did too much, and now our calendars are totally empty. We don't have anything on the calendar any night of the week. And it kind of feels like this desert where the things that we're used to and we rely on that make us comfortable and sustain us, they've been stripped away. I'm reminded of the Old Testament story of Hosea. It's really a story about how God pursues His, his people. And in the story of Hosea, God challenges Hosea to pursue a pursue a wife who's unfaithful to him to represent the way God pursues his people, you and me. And he says to Hosea about the way he pursues us, he says, therefore I will charm her. He's talking about his people, Israel. I will charm her and I'll bring her into the desert and speak tenderly to her heart. From there, I'll give her vineyards and make the core valley a door of hope. And there she'll respond to me as in the days of her youth, like the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Do I think that God is causing this pandemic as some sort of punishment for the world? No, I don't, I don't think that at all. But do I think that in this moment, God may be taking a bunch of people who have been distracted by so much and taking us by the hand and gently leading us into the desert where all those distractions finally fade away and we can hear his gentle, tender voice speaking softly to us, charming us so that we might be revived, so that his church might experience revival. Do I think God might be doing that? Well, yeah, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing God would do. Abby, Edward Abbey, finishes this, this walk in the desert. 
And he walks out of the, this desert after being desperately thirsty with all of these clear realizations that have come upon him in this time of desolation and difficulty. And he's proud of himself. And he walks out of the desert defiant. Even as he's walking back towards the city, he thinks to himself, you know, I'm so much better than all of that I'm walking towards because of what I've been through. And then this truck pulls up alongside him. He's still got a few miles to go and a, a pickup truck, an old pickup truck pulls up alongside him. And the guy asks if he wants to hop in the back. And without thinking, he throws his pack in the back and he says this, I throw my pack in the bed, I climb into the cab and seated once more on my rear end, like everybody else in the modern world, I slump with relief back into the delights of the civilization I love to despise. What do you think? Is that going to be us when this is all over? You know, is that going to be us as life begins to reopen and become normal again? Are we going to slip back into that civilization that it's so easy in this moment to recognize has caused us to miss that gentle and tender voice of God, charming us, calling us? I hope not. I hope that in this moment, what you hear, what you feel, what you see is the tenacious love that God has for you. And that as you experience that love, your life would be revived, that your soul would experience this revival like David, that you would lift your hands and cling to God, not caring who sees you or what they think of you because you know that you are caught up in the tenacious love of God. And if you can experience that, if this church can experience that, we're looking at revival.